Hello, and welcome to Las Doctoras podcast, bringing you conversations about race, gender, sexuality, reproductive justice, and so much more. I am Dr. Renee Limas, gender pronouns she, her. I am Dr. Christina Rose, gender pronouns she, her, hers. In this podcast, we are going to share space with women and other people of color to discuss ways to dismantle all systems of oppression, including white supremacist, capitalistic, cis-heteronormative patriarchy. We imagine ourselves sitting at the table in our abuelita's house, sharing a pot of frijoles de la olla and chasing that with a shot of tequila, all while thinking up revolutionary ideas. That's the sentiment we hope to bring you, and we invite you to join us on this journey. Bienvenidos. Hello, welcome to episode 13 of Las Doctoras podcast. So in figuring out where we're going to go next with our podcast, um, we've been making a list of some really important topics that we want to discuss, um, and we're working on some guests that we want to bring on um, to talk about those topics. However, you know, we're also juggling our home lives and our work lives, and so we really want to honor some time off for ourselves. So we've decided to make this the last episode of what we've decided will be season one. And we are going to take all of August off, and then we plan to come back um, sometime in September with a fresh new season of episodes and interviews to continue the fruitful conversations we've been um, bringing you all. So that being said, in this interview, um, or in this episode, we interview Norma Newton. She's the founder of the Edmosa Journal. You can find her on Instagram at the Edmosa Journal and online um, at edmosajournal.com. So she recently wrote and published an article for the parenting section of the New York Times entitled, I'm Darker Than My Daughter, Here's Why It Matters. And in the article, she shares an incident that happened with her daughter that had her confronting her own feelings of internalized colorism and how she experienced that throughout her life. Um, so in the interview, we'll get more into detail about um, her process sort of of writing the article and how that incident came about and her, you know, all her feelings sort of surrounding this incident. So, um, but if you have not already read the article, um, you can go to our link in the bio on Instagram, and there's a link, a direct link to the article that I would definitely suggest that you read. Um, I think it would give you really good context to our conversation to this interview. Um, so, you know, ultimately, this is um, the topic here that we're discussing is colorism. And colorism in and of itself is such a complex and yet important topic, particularly within the Latinx community. And so we're glad to be having this conversation with Norma to kind of flesh out some of these complexities, especially as it relates to parenting um, and raising children while unpacking our own intergenerational traumas, um, which is something that you hear Norma talk a lot about, right, in terms of um, how this incident with her daughter had her sort of reflecting back um, on her own traumas around the color of her skin and, you know, how the ways in which our kids are often a mirror um, to us to show us a lot of the internal work that we have to do. Um, but, you know, in, in listening back to our conversation, 
what really sort of stood out to me, and I say this in the interview, but I, I just want to sort of really mark this for for those of us or for those of y'all listening to this. Um, you know, I often hear this idea that children learn racism and they learn sexism and colorism and other discriminatory and oppressive ideas in the home. And though I think that that's true, I also think that it's only one part of the picture. So you'll hear in our interview with Norma, um, the realization that these ideas are also gathered outside of the home, right? So because these oppressive ideas are the very social norms by which we all live, right? Um, I think it can be very naive of us to think that, well, if we just make sure that we are raising our kids to love everybody and to accept everybody, then they'll be all good. Um, without realizing that there are still people going out into the world and being influenced by all kinds of other things that are already inherently um, engaged in these oppressive social dynamics, right? So even for those of us who work hard at creating home dynamics that are loving and accepting and aware um, of oppressive social dynamics, we have to remember that white supremacy, male male domination, power systems in general are the very air that we breathe. It's in our media, it's in fashion, it's in literature, in children's literature, it's everywhere. And so for all our well intentions, we cannot escape how the outside world will influence our children and sometimes have have them bringing these, these violent ideas home, right? These really um, just ugly notions of the world home. And so I think Norma does a really good point of, of, does a really good job of pointing this out, right? That um, not only do we not have control of how the outside world is going to influence our children, but on the contrary, we have to be overly intentioned on opposing those dynamics, right? We can't just say, oh, love everybody. We have to go a step beyond that, right? And Norma will kind of talk about the specifics of what that means, right? And what, what kinds of things that she has done. Um, um, and, and she sort of talks about the need for us to be transparent with our children, right? About where we are on our own journeys towards self-love, towards self-realization. And ultimately, if we are invested in social change, where we are at on those journeys as well, right? Because um, we're also unpacking a lifetime of um, these internalized oppressions and, um, and, you know, and we, yeah, we kind of talk about this, um, in the interview, but again, it's just, I think to me, that was such an important part of this conversation, realizing that, um, you know, it's like, you know, I feel, I felt such compassion for Norma to be confronting with this, to be confronted with this moment and to think, man, I thought we were doing a good job, you know, and yet somehow these ideas are still infiltrating to our own children, right? Um, And again, Norma speaks so well and so direct to the larger responsibilities of parenting beyond discipline, beyond behavior monitoring, but really about establishing the values in our home in a way that are aware of oppressive social dynamics, Um, And that really gift our children with the tools to be able to navigate those on their own while feeling confident in who they are and um, and their value in the world. Um, At least that's what I saw her work doing. And that's what I saw 
um, the things that she was speaking to doing. Um, this, of course, is but one but one part of the larger conversation that must continue to be had on colorism. It, again, it's such a it's such an important conversation that we need to continue to have. But we think that here in this interview, Norma shines a particularly powerful light on the need for healing and self-compassion when it comes to when it comes to colorism, when it comes to the ways in which we raise our children, the ways in which we talk about this with our children, right? It's really about healing these generational lines, um, having compassion for where we're at, you know, in that journey, and then to be able to have our children see that, right? To be able to model that for our children and to, to have them see that and to hopefully give them something better, right? To give them a better model than, than we had maybe. So, um, yeah, I really just, you know, it's, it's interesting this journey of this podcast and going into interviewing, into interviews sort of with an idea of how we want to sort of guide the conversation and we might have a list of questions or just a list of topics and we might have a little discussion beforehand and like you know what where we want to sort of center this interview but at the end we never really know in what direction it's going to go we don't know what you know the guests are going to say we don't sometimes even they're surprised at the things that come up for them um and i think that that's what has made creating this podcast so powerful is we're just always really surprised by the things that come out and the the direction that the that the conversation ends up going and it's always just so beautiful for us to be you know witnesses to these amazing guests coming on and sharing their wisdom um and you know this this process this this creative outlet for Christina and I has um brought us so much joy um so much life so much inspiration it's kind of been our own like um self-care <laughs> to be able to kind of create this space to have these conversations you know, um, I think because sometimes when we get together with our friends, these are the kinds of conversations that we have. We were we were just together with some friends this weekend saying like, man, we anytime we get together, we're just always going deep, right? Like we can't just, you know, like there's no small talk with us. It's always like straight to the like, let's have this in-depth conversation in the middle of a party. Um, but here with this podcast, we're able to kind of share those conversations, share those insights, share um, and, and just bounce our ideas, you know, off other people and and then put those conversations out into the world and see how, you know, other people are are sort of navigating these same kinds of issues. So um, this has been a super, super fun journey so far. And obviously, we're hoping to continue um, to be bringing you these conversations um, into our next season. And we're just happy for those who have joined us so far and um we're hoping that you will stay with us as we just continue to grow and expand this work and um to continue to create spaces for these you know ultimately important conversations thanks and i hope you enjoyed this episode Welcome, everyone. We are here today recording. I don't even know. What is this, our 12th episode or something? This will, be, this will be 13. Ooh, I feel lucky. Yes. But 13. 
And with us today, we have Norma Newton, who is the founder of the Hermosa Journal, um, who we came to through our comadre, Carolina Adame. And honestly, it is such an honor to have you here and speaking to something that is very important to us and I think to our community. And that is a couple different things. One of them is colorism within our family, within just the makeup of, of just the nuances of, of how we interact with our children and with each other from the Latinx perspective and larger, you know, really considering just so much in that. I also think what we're talking about today is the power of speaking your truth, your story, whether it's about anxiety, which we were talking about before, or the vulnerable places within your relationships, naming that and sharing it, you know, and to have your article, um, I'm darker than my daughter, here's why it matters, come out in the New York Times, right? I mean, yay! <laughs> and to have it just create just this wave of um, conversation. I think I've seen it just in, in so many different spaces on Instagram, on Facebook, um, within my small community, within my family, like just, you can feel the ripples, just so powerful. And, um, and we are just so lucky to have you here with us on our podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely. I think that we can begin by just having you introduce yourself a little bit more to us and to our listeners. So my name is Norma. I am a creative, a writer, a mama, um, an indigenous Latina, a Chicana, Pura descent, more specifically. Ooh! Yay! <laughs> um, I live in Los Angeles, and I love in Los Angeles. I love that. I love it. <laughs> that's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, maybe tell us about, um, if you want your kids, what that's life, what that life is like. I have two little people. I have, uh, I have a, a seven-year-old and a six-year-old, um, and they keep me super busy. They are super dynamic, interesting, um, and, you know, they really make me reevaluate um, a lot of beliefs, and they make me, our interactions really make me think about um, how I was raised and how I'm raising them and what kind of world they're, um, they're going to inherit. How did you come into the Almosa Journal? How did that come into your life? Is that before or after or during? Um, I created that shortly after uh, my children were born, precisely because I, I, I want them to have a different experience with media. I want them mm. to be able to have access to images and stories that um, really display the diversity in our community. Mm -hmm. And I feel that um, 
that diversity is often lacking, that mm. robust representation of who we are every day, of what we do, of what we're of, of what we enjoy, of who we are, is very narrow in mainstream media. And, um, you know, I remember looking at my son when he was very little and just thinking, what are the images that he is going to find when he looks to mm-hmm. television or magazines or books? Are they going to be reflective of the dynamic, um, you know, landscape mm-hmm. that I see? in my community or will they, you know, will they be sort of what um, was available to me and to a lot of people in our generation and before, which are, I think, very limiting images, um, very narrow and um, stereotypical images. Mm-hmm. So tell us maybe a little bit more exactly what Edmosa Journal is. So people, they are not familiar with it. So Edmosa Journal seeks to, um, it focuses on the beauty and the diversity within uh, our communities. So the the idea behind it was really to produce images and content mm-hmm. that um, that uh, is reflective of what's already happening. So this this is here. This beauty, right. this creativity, this um, you know passion, uh, this positivity, this exists in our community, and it is um, often not recognized by mainstream uh, publications, whether mm. they are um, magazines or books or blogs or TV or you know all of these things, right? Yeah. And um, so, what my goal was to really just have a a, a bank, a a, mm. a reserve, so that mm. you could at any moment tap into mm. that and find somebody that looks something like you and is doing something beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's really where it started. Just this desire for my children to have access to a place um, that really reflected their own their own beauty and their yeah. own promise and their yeah. own uh, you know creativity and and multiplicity yeah this is like talking about beyond mere representation it's talking about like full representation almost exactly. and um telling the stories <clears throat> from a, <clears throat> that, that empowered place and that visionary place things that we were talking about absolutely before. yeah i think yeah i find that so I don't want to say refreshing, <laughs> but it's just, um, it is, right? I think I, I sometimes reflect on what images I had as a child, and then I see images, even sometimes the images that are flawed now, they're still there in a way that they didn't exist, right? So we talk about Coco, mm-hmm. and I'm like, yeah, there's some things like, Mm-mm-mm. but I didn't have a movie that was remotely close to that Absolutely. when I was young. And so for my kids to validate their experience of Dia de los Muertos with this movie, it's like, oh, yeah, it's in a movie, so, you know, we're cool or whatever. Mm-hmm. We're, we exist. We exist. This is a real thing. This isn't just something that, like, my mom and you know, right. or, we exist in the mainstream and yeah. need to be celebrated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's huge. That's a concept that I certainly didn't um, grow up with. Yeah. But then and I hear you wanting to go a step further, right? Because some of the criticism of Coco is that it still matches in the world of borders. Absolutely. And yeah. you're like, you know what? We're in, we want to trans 
those borders, right? We yeah. want to get past that. Absolutely. And that's not to say that um, those stories at, or those areas or that part of our history is not important. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. And mm-hmm. it's so important for our children to understand that. And it's also important for our children to know that many of us have already have a different experience yeah. and that that experience is just as valid as these other experiences. Yes. This is so great because my, my graduate work was all about media. So my, um, it was critical media literacy. And part of my dissertation project was how do we teach? I was focusing particularly on like teenage, you know, Latinas. Um, but of course in the process I had kids. So I was like, okay, how do I translate? Like, how do we teach kids critical media literacy? And really critical media literacy is just learning how to read the media in a critical way, right? Cause we learn how to meet, read the media in the way the media wants us to. Right. Um, and so it's like, how do we put that, that sort of critical filter between how we're sort of taking that in, right? Taking those messages in. The oppositional gaze, like bell hooks. Right. Kind of stuff, right, yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, we've seen, especially in our commuter circle, <laughs> this idea of, like, no media, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, that the, the better alternative is just to not have media. One, I think that's unrealistic mm-hmm. <laughs> on so many levels. Well, I think it increasingly gets harder to have that stance as children get older. I think yeah. certainly when children are young, and we didn't have media for our children up until very recently, and yeah. st- they still don't really have yeah. a heavy media diet, um, yeah. although media is much more a part of their lives now than ever yeah but I um I'm not sure how realistic it is uh yeah for the long long term term. and I think too it's I mean because part of my work I get into like what is defined as media Mm -hmm. right and so yeah we can say no tv no this but they're still outliving in the world right and they're gonna get influenced and so for me my approach is more like let's let's expose them to media and give them a critical language from the inception Mm -hmm. you know and so and so that's like one thing but the other thing is always um, exposing them to as much alternative images as possible, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're, um, like I shared with you all, you know, we were, last summer we read Charlotte's Web. It's a beautiful story, but there's some stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I omitted some things. And then my first thing was like, okay, the next book we read has to have a character of color, right? Or the, the next thing we read has mm-hmm. to, you know, have a different kind of experience. And so for me, my approach is not necessarily limiting media, but exposing them to, as like you said, the diversity of the ex- of those experiences, mm-hmm. so that they understand that um, there's 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 complexity, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times getting into like how we just see these very stereotypical images over and over, um, and then it becomes like tokenism, and they're like, "Well, see, you got your one Latino movie, mm-hmm. you should be happy." <laughs> And it's like, no, we need to see more, more, more. We need, we just need more, right? Like we can critique Coco all we want. At the end of the day, we just need more. We need more nuanced stories. We need more nuanced stories. Yeah. Nuanced stories that reflect the robust living. Yeah. The, the, our existence. Yeah. We're not all one thing. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. And here we are. I feel like it's amazing. The three of us, we are on the cusp of like a part of this world that has the privilege to access those things, right? We don't have to survive anymore. It's not mm-hmm. about just resistance and liberation. It's about celebration, right? That's something we come back to. It's about we don't just survive now. We have options to thrive. And so what are those those visions and 
and we're we're making those right yeah. for our children. We're accessing them before we began recording. Just all these books came on the table, and we were like, I was writing all of them down. <laughs> like, how do I? I have access to these now, you yeah. know, um, and they're continuing to manifest and grow mm-hmm. exponentially too, yeah. you know. So mm-hmm. it's such a beautiful thing that you have um, brought that together, you know, in your world within the Mosa Journal, family, and everything like that. Yeah. It's a it's a great resource, you know. It's it's you know in my own you know we were talking before we recorded about like like she said like the books and for me books have always been the easiest way to either open up a conversation with my kids or if I don't have the language to talk to them about something I'm like there's got to be a book about it Absolutely. and so then all of a sudden I have all these these books and then I become a resource for other like moms or parents mm-hmm. or whatever and I think that's kind of what I see you doing with the Mosa Journal right it's like you said this sort of collection of things so oh we need you know let's go find the image of this and let's see ourselves reflected in this way and it's sort of it's an art Absolutely, that's part of it. I also wanted it to serve as a um, as as a as a basis for knowledge. Mm -hmm. I want our children and ourselves and our you know comadres and everyone else to know. Oh, I'm looking for a dentist, or oh, Mm. there's this scientist who Mm. just published this book on Mm. you know the brain and um, adolescence. Oh, and she's a Latina. Yes. I think I might buy that book, <laughs> right? I think it, I also really wanted to tap into sort of the power of our community um, as um, as as consumers, mm. right? Because I think that we often give away that power to different communities, yes. and I think that um, <laughs> if we knew that we that you know, yeah, our comadre or our comadres comadre. <laughs> wrote this book, yeah. we would be much more inclined to Or if our comadres up. comadre was a podiatrist. Right. Yes. <laughs> or if our comadres comadre was a photographer. Yeah. And, you know, so I think it's also about um, making sure that our community knows that these resources are available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Because oftentimes we are so um, isolated in our day to day existence that it's difficult to um, sort of take a breath and say, oh, what are my options for this? Yeah. It's amazing that there's that isolation given, like, Google, given, like, this world, this social networking, you know, Mm -hmm. crazy world that we live in now, then we're still, you know, not really connecting, not to to the people, like, you know, so much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean... This can be. This can go into a whole other conversation. But then, who owns that network, right? Like, who owns the social right. networks and, and who and runs those and who does mm. it? Right. There's. I mean, because there's always going to be power dynamics. Totally. Absolutely. You know, within that, and so it's us navigating within those power dynamics to create these alternative spaces. Right? And hopefully, one day, own those spaces. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Right. Create those spaces. And yeah. I think that 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 ownership and um, uh, is a very important part of our community that um, we don't often talk about or focus on. Mm-hmm. And I think that as creators, we have to, um, I, I think it would behoove us to really be mindful of how can we control our creative output and how can we cre- really sort of, um, you know, go a step 
further mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that we have the channels. Those are our channels. The power of the journal, the power of the podcast, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. I was thinking about the nuances that we're trying and wanting to have in our life. And then I was thinking about how you took this nuance um, into the very personal part of your life. And I think that's what I'm hearing in your article, really. You know, um, growing up in the academic, you know, primary and secondary education, it was like, here's all the stories that you should know. Mm -hmm. And your story should always be this very, like, um, left brain. It's not, it's all facts. It's all, like, mm -hmm. about observation. It's mm -hmm. not about you at all. Scientific. Mm-hmm. And then re recognizing in, you know, gender and ethnic studies that, no, we want to subvert that. It's about you, and it's about putting in your real your reality, um, recognizing your subjectivity, recognizing um, how the personal, the more personal you can get, the more it will um, actually reach other people. Yeah. You know? Um, the personal is universal. Yes. <laughs> and I... I am still, you know, 30 years in education, whatever, still struggling with um, being that vulnerable person and naming it in my academic work. And something I think that Renee and I are doing all the time in our work, um, and it always helps to have other people. And I feel like you um, and the article, um, I was just so floored and inspired and just thought... Um, you are speaking to that deep nuance, and sometimes that's deeply vulnerable. And I just want to celebrate that again. And I wanted to focus a little bit about that and how you were able to name some of those things for yourself. Um, one of the questions I had was, um, how did you feel about writing that article, like in the process? And then how do you feel now? I mean, now that it's out there. How many people have read it, right? So, um, well, I got to. I have to say that writing that essay started immediately after the experience, right? So mm -hmm. it took me a very long time to to really be able to produce that work. Mm -hmm. um, it started as just you know free form journal entry, and it was very difficult, right? Um, I think that after you have that type of experience, um, it is, it, when you start writing, when I started writing, um, I did it because I wanted to record it. There was part of me that didn't believe that that had just happened. And mm. there was also another part of me that knew that I wouldn't really be able to get to all of the feelings, everything that sort of um, it encapsulated the situation encapsulated without processing and the easiest mm. way for me to process was to write it down mm -hmm. and to have space right yeah for those uh who may be listening who who didn't read the article yet can you describe the scenario that created this catalyst um so it was a Sunday evening, my daughter and I were getting ready. I was getting my daughter ready for um, uh, bedtime, and it sort of started off like any other day. And you know, out of the blue, we we have some moments which I describe in the essay, and um, she's sort of pulling back from me, and I'm a little confused. I'm like, is this a game? What's happening? And, you know, the short story is that she basically tells me that she doesn't want me to touch her because I'm too dark. 
And of course, I felt, you know, I still feel like I'm getting kicked in the stomach. Yeah. Right. And um, that's what, that's what triggered the, the essay. I deeply feel that. I feel it like for my, you know, for the grandmothers, for the aunties, for, you know, all of, all of the generational pain in my family that's been mm-hmm. caused from that colorism. Mm-hmm. So it's a very real thing yeah. of my relationship with my child too mm-hmm. and how much lighter he is than me. Yeah. Mm, I feel it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing it again. So it's, I'm hearing that it was super, you, you had to write it. There was no not writing it down. Right. I had to write about the experience. I didn't know it was going to end up looking or living where it did, mm-hmm. how it did, um, but I had mm-hmm. to get it out of my body. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I did that in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. So I did that through the writing. I did that with my therapist. I did that, you know, on the yoga mat, but I had to process it. Mm-hmm. And in order for me to fully understand and sort of um, uh, live with the situation, mm-hmm. I had to write it down. Yeah. My, I'm, it's, it's, this is such an interesting thing because it does come up often and the, the fear, it's, it's almost like there was fear in that, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like, uh, I think as for people of color, there's always a fear of a moment like that, right? Or even worse, a fear of that happening outside of the home, right? right? Um, and so I'm wondering in that moment, and I don't know if this is, you don't have to answer it. <laughs> but I think for me, when, when moments like that happen, I'm, or not that, the, that something like that has happened, but just something, I'm always like, oh, what did I do to make you think that way? Mm-hmm. Or what did I not do to make you think that way, you know? Um, and I'm wondering for you, what was, the, what was the, the thought, the immediate thought when that happened? Other than devastation. So I think that um, the... One of the thoughts that I clearly remember having almost immediately was I I felt very apologetic. Like Mm. I wanted to apologize for being ugly in her eyes. I wanted to apologize for for her having these feelings. Um, And, you know, immediately thought of sort of my own um, uh, tumultuous relationship with the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. Um, And just thinking like, yeah, of course she thinks I'm, you know, this horrible, hideous monster. Like, mm. society tells her that. She's probably already grasped this. And maybe I'm not, you know, or, ha- like, ha- yeah. am, am I doing something? Like, what am I doing um, mm-hmm. to further those thoughts, to, mm-hmm. to, to, to reinforce the idea that brown isn't beautiful? And that's, I think, the thing that's the, the powerful piece here, because for as on top of it as I think the three of us are, right, we're on top of all these dynamics going on in our children's eyes, and yet a moment like that can still happen. Absolutely. And it's like, so there, it's just proof that no matter what we do in our homes, they still are people in the world that are exposed. And that's how systemic these things are. Absolutely. That you almost can't stop it. Yeah, you know, I was really sort of, um, I was surprised for many reasons, but, you know, in our home, so my husband is white, and um, I think that we're pretty equal, 
maybe <laughs> sometimes I, you know, run the show a little more. And so I, that's okay. You know, it was interesting. So I was thinking, so where, where did these ideas come from? So clearly in our house, whiteness and brownness coexist as equals, mm. as partners, as, um, you know, as, as lovers, as, as creators of beauty, as creators of life, as creators of so many things. Right. So I don't think she would have captured this sentiment from what happens in the house. Right. And yet it still came home. Right. Um, and you know, people have asked me, well, was there an incident that provoked that, that conversation in her? Like, did you later find out that, oh, somebody had said something to, to her. her? And to this day, nothing, mm. right? So she couldn't articulate yeah. or pinpoint something that was said or something that she overheard. Um, because my initial thought was, okay, well, did some of the kids talk about my skin color? Yeah. In like, front where of did this come from? Right. Where did this or come from? Or did somebody say that to her about her skin? I mean, she's a very fair child uh, compared to the color of my skin. And um, I think that living in West L.A., she appears phenotypically to be um, very much one of the mixed kids in the community. Mm. There are a lot of mixed kids in our community. And so I was sort of like, oh, that's so interesting that she, if that, if she felt this way, it it would sort of blow my mind because there are so many other mixed children racially. And, you know, you see them and you're just kind of like, ah, I "Mm, I don't know. They all kind of look the same. Right. (laughs) And so it was, it was really interesting to sort of in a split second, just sort of run through all the possibilities. Right, right. Did someone say this to her? Did she hear this? Did, you know, did she, um, did she see something that made her yeah. discern that this, that this was not a desirable color, that this is not, So you know? th- that's such an important point, right? Because when, when I, so part of my dissertation work too was to have students. So I worked with teenage students and I asked them like, how much TV do you watch? How much, you know, and then I would ask them, okay, how many characters of color are in, you know, that show or in, and their sort of answer to things or what kind of racist depictions are there in that show? And they would say, well, there's nobody, there's no black person in that show or there's no Latino person in that show. So it can't be racist. I'm like, no, that's the racist part. So it's the absence of that representation that makes it inherently racist. And so it's that idea, right, that it's not necessarily any one incident. It could be that when you're inundated with images over and over and over of the same kind of person, right? I mean, we talk about this with women, too. It's the same body type over and over and over, and you don't see yourself reflected in any way, shape, or form. You start to internalize. And that's that's the psychology of, of like, media, right, mm-hmm. and the way that it works. And so it could be that it's not any one incident. It's just the ways in which these images get into our psyche, right? And they, and they make those, those deep, deep impacts. And, um, and that's just, and to me, that's heartbreaking because again, like I said, it's, you know, we're, I'm always trying to be on top of the way they perceive themselves as like boys, mm-hmm. right? Like, cause I have sons and they're like, Oh, well, boys and girls. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, girls can do whatever they, and yet my little one will come home and see something pink and be like, oh, mama, this is for you. And I'm like, where did you get that from? (laughs) 
But it's not for me, and it may not be from any one person. It's just the world that we live in. Right. And it's the cultural norms and sort of um, ideas that sort of permeate. They permeate, not they permeate. They permeate. And I think that's a huge, huge point to make, right? Because I think sometimes we get caught up in, like, racism has to look this way or colorism looks this way, but... Um, or they must have got it from somewhere, right? Or it must have come from something. But the truth is, it, it, it's the very air that we breathe. Mm-hmm. And it's, you I know. Mean, it could come from so many things. I think about linguistics around, like, the earth. The earth is, is, is dark. It's, dirt, it's dirty. Like, you know, this thing kind of... And this, dirty is negative. And then there's all these connotations that are brought to it. So you don't want to get dirty from, like, playing in, you know... Or dark is scary. We've talked about that before, right? Like, the idea of dark is scary and, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I'm also hearing in this moment a couple different things. One of those, like, you know, children as awakeners. You know, wow, (laughs) hello, dude. You know, that message, you know, and also just that that the body keeping score, that internalized shame, you know, and... And recognizing that, you know, the shame we carry within ourselves, you know, around racism and sexism, those internalized voices are not going away in our generation. You know, it's not like I'm going to, like, totally relieve myself of all that, have kids, be able to raise them in a way that doesn't have any of that, you know, Um, really believing in seven generations. But just also feeling like, um, I don't know, in that moment, I would, yeah. I wonder, like, how how can I translate my shame, like, be a vehicle that's not someone who isn't shameful, mother that doesn't carry shame or guilt, but names it and says, here's how I'm working on it. Yeah. Here's, you know, here's my words, you know, here's my mantra, here's my, you know, thing that I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to, here's what my, you know, upbringing would tell me these voices say, here's how I'm going to say it, and just being transparent about that with my child, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, I always say we're still unpacking so much of this, right? We're still like, okay, releasing these gender norms and these racial norms and, you know, just societal norms in general, right? We're like unpacking so much and then we have to raise kids with an eye towards something different. And yet I remember, you know, really early on, I was like, I was not given the manual, (laughs) on how to raise kids without these gender expectations. I was given the clear manual on how to raise them with gender expectations. How do I how do I unpack it for myself and them at the same time? And I think like you said it's just knowing that it's a journey. It's not going to change in one generation and and be transparent with that process, you know. I think transparency is really important. Mm. I think it's important for our children to know that we're not perfect, that we don't have it figured out. I think that sets up some unhealthy and unrealistic expectations. And I think that as they see us work through it, that that's actually a gift. Yeah. It lets them know that it's okay, that nobody is perfect, that nobody has it all figured out, and that all we can do is try. Ooh. This is the daughter who's reading The New Yorker, right? <laughs> it makes me wonder, you know, the follow-up question was, you know, how do you feel now that it's out there, thinking that the world is reading this, but then also thinking, has your daughter read this? No, neither of my children have read it yet. Um, and I hope that when they do, they see it as... Um, 
a story to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. 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 I hope that they understand that. Um, I really use the experience as a jumping off point mm-hmm. to discuss my own experience. Yes. And so that's something that I've had to talk to both of them about because mm-hmm. shortly after the work was published. Um, my daughter was going around telling people, did you see me in the New York Times? Making <laughs> 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 my story in the New York Times. Uh, and so, we, you know, we had to sort of uh, check that a little bit because uh, it, it's not, it's not really her story. It's not really about her uh, as much as it is about our community, about intergenerational pain, about my uh, experience, about, um, you know, my shame and mm-hmm. uh, my journey mm-hmm. towards self-love. And um, you're like, oh, Miha, you were the awakening. <laughs> That's, what That's you the did catalyst. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Gratitude to yeah. you. You know, totally. yeah. you know I, think, I think that's so important to say something like that. I think because we do get so caught up in wanting to do things for our kids and wanting to give them, you know, validate them. And that's important. But like you said, this is it. It it was about her, the story, right? That this incident, but it was about you, and that's. I don't know. I feel like that's an important part to say, right? That we can have kids and and want to give to them, but still, you know, that we need to focus that on ourselves that we are okay in order to be okay for them. You Absolutely. Know? And I think in in our family, it was particularly important to have that conversation um, because. My other child was saying, well, mommy, what about me? <laughs> yes. Can your next story be about me? And so I've had to reiterate to both of them, you know, the story isn't really about her. And yes, I have plenty of stories that you have helped, where you have helped me realize things. And I hope one day to publish the, you know, one or multiple of those stories. But, you know, it's important that you know that the story is not about her. And so, you know, I think he's he's beginning to sort of grasp that. But, yeah. it, you know, it, it is something that still comes up, for sure. And how old is your oldest? He's seven. Okay. Oh, so they're, they're pretty close in age, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The competition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hear that. It's real. Sure. Yeah. I want to share that I didn't start thinking that this was a story that was going to be universal or that the story really mattered. It was something that I wanted to share, but also something that I had never seen mm-hmm. in a place like the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And so there was a part of me that didn't know whether, you know, that didn't really believe that that, that mm-hmm. my story belonged there, could live there, Yeah, you know? And I think that that's important for other writers and other people, other creatives, mm-hmm. other other souls on their journey to understand that even though we haven't come across our work in those places in certain places, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be approaching those places. Mm-hmm. It's like the thing you know you were asking for these newer stories to be out there. You know, women of color mm-hmm. stories out there, and it's 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 easier to think that those stories could be out there than your own nuanced story. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And I, uh, you know, had somebody who repeatedly told me, "Well, if not you, then who?" Mm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's it. That's, 
That's the answer. There are mm-hmm. always going to be storytellers that are more um, more experienced. There mm-hmm. are always going to be writers that have more credentials or that write prettier or, you know. But what like, does all that mean? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I think that we often hold ourselves no, it's, back. Yeah. Right? Because we mm-hmm. we don't mm-hmm. value who we are, what we have, um, enough. Yeah. I think we, we, you know, we call it imposter syndrome. Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, that's part of it. We, mm-hmm. you know, we're always kind of back and forth. And I think it's so interesting, too, for us, you know, doing this podcast. She was the one that was, like, all about it. And I was like, I don't know. I'm the one that had to, like, <laughs> read into it before I begin. Um, but, yes. But, and then it's interesting because we can do something like this, right, record, and it goes out, and then all of a sudden we get this feedback, and you're like, oh, wait, people are actually listening. <laughs> 100%. You know, or my mom will say, oh, so-and-so said they heard your podcast. Yes. I'm like, they are? like, Or amazing women, like Norma, you know, then wants to be on our podcast. Oh. And it's, it's you know, because, again, we're in this little, like, you know, in my, in my kitchen table, <laughs> just recording, you know, talking, um, and sometimes I'm just here talking to myself. And then all of a sudden it goes out, you know, which I'm, it's the same thing. I'm sure you're writing, you're just processing your own thing. And then Absolutely. all of a sudden it, it lives and breathes yeah. in a different way. And there, and um, you can't control that. Yeah. So once, once you release your work, whatever that is, whether it's the podcast, whether it's the writing, whether it's the academic paper, you really, um, you set it free on its own journey mm-hmm. to find its own path, to find its <sighs> listeners or its readers or... Yeah. No. So interesting. <laughs> I love it. I think we're actually, how long are we at? Yeah, no, I mean, we're good. Um, I think maybe, um, I, I think maybe to kind of wrap up the conversation, where, where do you see your family dynamic out now? I think you've kind of spoken to it but a little bit, but, or maybe what are your hopes for the future in terms of addressing colorism, racism within your own family, you know, going forward? So the incident really helped, um, really helped me see that I wasn't doing enough. (laughs) I wasn't doing enough of naming the problem Mm. or the solution. Solution. I was just, I was just assuming that through osmosis, the children (laughs) would see that, uh, we're all beautiful. Mm-hmm. We're all equal. We all deserve to be here to take up space. And the reality was something different. Yeah. And that incident helped me see that. Yeah. That I actually wasn't doing enough. Um, so since then, we sort of all doubled down on <laughs> you know, um, how we name things, what we say. Mm-hmm. And we've just become much more intentional about our words, yeah, and the message that our children are, you know, receiving. So part of that is through the books that we have at home, um, mm-hmm. through the art that we have on our walls, mm-hmm. through the people who we have come over, mm-hmm. um, and also so. And then once we leave our home, it's about naming the beautiful brown woman who's walking down the street, right? It's about saying, oh, look, I love the color of her skin. I'm like, mm. oh, mm, look at that. She's gorgeous. Yes. 
right? Something yeah. that I might be thinking in my head, but I'm not actually articulating. So that wow. both of my children are hearing that. So that they are aware that, oh, well, mommy thinks they're beautiful. Right. And I think that that has really shifted. Certainly it's shifted my daughter's perspective because mm-hmm. now she will say it to me. Uh, you know, she'll say like, oh, mommy, look, she's so pretty. She's got beautiful brown skin just like you. Oh. <laughs> Transformative moment. Absolutely. I mean, she's softening. Like, it, it, it is a process. Yeah. It is a process. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, we can't let up. Is what I've noticed, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. at every stage in their development, we need to have appropriate um, representation yeah. for them. So as they get older, it's the books that they read mm-hmm. on their own and ensuring that there is uh, a multitude of abilities and genders and races and mm-hmm. ethnicities and experiences experiences yeah yeah I think something that I you know in talking about this that came up so much is because you know I've had certain moments in my, in my own lives and I immediately like oh my god the same thing am I not doing enough um but just to know that it's because the the perfectionist in me always says I'm not doing enough I've screwed them up for life Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not just and and I think what's powerful about what you just said was that 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 moment that incident that hit so hard can be transformed right you can go from her being afraid of that to saying oh it's beautiful right they're still young enough to be able to and that's really just the the journey of childhood mm-hmm, right is mm-hmm. sometimes they say weird random things and you're like where did that come from absolutely <laughs> and it's not like oh my god they're this evil person or they're this whatever it's like oh that's just maybe where they're at in their brain development absolutely. right or whatever it is and that they're still very impressionable and and we can sort of still guide them in in positive directions and so i think that's an important part right that just because that incident happened did it mean you're done, <laughs> right? Like you screwed it up for life. It's like, okay, now we need to be proactive and now we need to, you know, be more intentional yes. and that, that can go in a, in a, you know, we can still sort of put that in a positive direction. Exactly. And I think that, um, I think that at any stage in their development, yeah, mm-hmm. this is something that we can come back to. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, I think that like many of us, they're, we're all growing. We're yeah. all learning. We're all still being exposed to different concepts and different ideas. And yeah. we can all shift. Of course. Yeah. We can all soften. I love the softening. It's such an interesting thing. Thinking about how, you know, we know that children are from modeling. And then we also know that we have to be super intentional about that. Because that's what I'm hearing. You can't, you, can't, you have to like speak to those things outwardly, you know, so they can yeah. hear them and you're modeling them hearing these things, you know? I know for my son, people are like, oh, he's like, you know, he's like a surfer. I was like, no, he's so tan. I was like, not tan. <laughs> the way I am, you know, like, and I speak to that with right. him, you know, that this is. Yeah. It's my mom, you know, she, she was always oh I don't want to get too much sun Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too dark and I would always be like mom please don't one you shouldn't say that for yourself Mm -hmm. right and I don't want my kids to think you know because my older son we were in Kabul for a week and he came back like three shades darker (laughs) and you know and I think it's beautiful but I hear when I hear my mom saying that 
to herself and then saying it out loud. You know, I try to be um, just reminding her, you know, that they're hearing that. I don't want them to ever associate, you know, darkness with anything other than just who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, well, and I think that that is uh, a lot of the work that we are doing um, around colorism. It's it's understanding that colorism is intergenerational, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's very deeply rooted in so many cultures mm-hmm. across the world. Mm-hmm, right? This mm-hmm. is not just a Latino thing. This is not just you know many many cultures around the world have experiences with colorism, mm-hmm. and that's. I think primarily because so many cultures around the world have been colonized. Oh, yes. You know, it, it is, it is a yes. very deeply rooted and um, difficult issue to talk about because so many generations have ignored it. And so by doing the work today, we are helping future generations not only have awareness, but hopefully not carry that trauma around. Yes. Yes. So much intergenerational trauma caused from colorism and racism. Yeah, and we I think healing that in society yeah. by by speaking those words. Yes. She's beautiful, and you're healing yourself. Absolutely, too. and you're healing me. You know, as you say that, I just think this is like the different yeah. you know changes layers. that are happening. Yeah. The layers around healing. Absolutely, um, it's 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 um it's healing that is both sort of very personal. And also very universal, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it is. It is healing that can happen across the community, across communities, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's really important. Yeah. And I think part of that is is like we've said, like naming that, right? Because even if you know, because we've talked about this is such so generational. And even if generations past knew there were problems with this, they didn't know how to articulate that or how to maybe have the voice to change that or, you know, what the alternative was. And we're maybe of this generation, of this time and place, that we can do that. Of this privilege. Of this privilege. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Taking right? back our privilege, uh, taking back our beauty, taking back our names, renaming, you know, reclaiming. I think that's, that's yeah. pivotal. And deciding what, what we are going to pass on and what, mm-hmm. you know, we're not. <laughs> and what we're done with. What has served us enough and what we are um, leaving, leaving behind. Happily. Yeah. But if we don't do it, right? Who else is going to do that? And I think yeah. that's the work, you know. If we don't do it, they will doing. eventually, Ooh. right? Our kids, it, all of this will need to be unpacked at some point. And so, you know, we're starting that, you know, like you say, for the next seven generations. And I love to sort of think about the, the um, impact across the whole body. Mm. So it's not just sort of emotional. It's mental. It's mm. physical. Because trauma is manifest physically in so many ways, mm-hmm. right? For sure. The, the fact that we are sitting here having these conversations, that people are reading this kind of work, that this work is being published mm-hmm. and um, disseminated so widely is really a part of that healing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? I think the work we're doing, I want to talk about Samia de las Abuelas, because that's what's coming up for me. You know, we're, we're working with Carolina Valme and Marla Sanchez to write this book that really just brings to the forefront as much as possible in a published piece, recipes, stories, things that we still remember from our abuelas and getting it out there and in 
in our meetings, it's a healing process, yeah. you know. Um, and then talking about it, getting connected to our larger community, it's it's that way too. And it's and then you know we're speaking about it in at academic conferences too, and that's taking that conversation to that space too. Yeah. You know, how many, how how can we just share so that you know, and in that process, we're you know exponentially bringing healing. I think that's a good place to end on healing. I love it. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here. Um, maybe you want to share where people can find you, contact information. Uh, so the hermosajournal.com uh, um, on Instagram. At the Hermosa Journal, I think. The hermosajournal.com. <laughs> no, sorry, sorry. I think it's just at the um, the, the at the Hermosa Journal, right? Yeah, at the Hermosa Journal, yeah. On Instagram mm -hmm. and on the website, hermosajournal.com. And um, hopefully look out for the writing in, yes. in different publications. Yeah, so we'll, in the show notes, we'll link all of that and the, the article. Wonderful, thank you. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much, thank you so much for having me. <laughs>